So let's say you're listening right now and you have very poor relationships in your life. You don't feel connected to many people. Something in your past impacts how you interact with people today. Well, the data show that you can actually use an intervention and improve the relationships in your lives. And you're going to learn also through this next two episodes why the relationships in your lives have a very direct influence on your happiness and your quality of life. Welcome to the Bro Novo Podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. Hello, friends, and welcome to this week's episode of the Bro Novo Podcast. I'm your host, Thomas Pierce. This week, as every week, I bring to you an episode, a podcast episode dedicated to cultivating healthy communication for men. This is not at the expense or exclusion of anyone who is not a man. Rather, it is filling a need that I see in my culture that I exist in, specifically American culture, but one that also is applicable, I think, to other cultures, which is men are not conditioned to cultivate self-awareness, cultivate authentic expression, and as a result, are hampered and limited in the relative success of their relationships and thus lives. This week is, rather than being an interview episode, is actually going to be a book review. I'm reading a book called The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness, which I found absolutely fascinating. The two authors of this book are Robert Waldinger, and Mark Schultz. They're the director and associate director of the Harvard Happiness Study, upon which the book is based. Mr. Waldinger is a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, and Mr. Schultz, the associate director of the study, is the chair in psychology at Bryn Mawr College, uh, has a PhD in psychology. And the book itself is written in a way to take the data and the insights found from this longitudinal study and apply it to anyone who wants to read and learn and enrich their own lives. The This episode will be the first half of the book, my notes on it and my takeaways, because as I was reading it, I truly found it to be just filled with gems of information about relationships and their impact on our lives, and I found myself moved to take notes and share it with you. So this this episode is going to be the first half of the book. Next week's episode will be the second half of the book. We're going to go into detail here, but the core thesis of the book is that the people who are the most likely to be healthy in late into their lives, because the study uh, spans time, had strong and rich friendships and meaningful relationships in their lives. A rough correlation of the more meaningful, impactful, real relationships someone were to have, the healthier they would be into late life. Or uh, the other way to look at it would be the strongest correlating factor to long-term health would be the number of meaningful relationships someone has as defined by themselves. 
So that is more so more meaningful than diet, exercise, employment, any of the other factors that they were to were to look at. So this is not the idea is not that if you just have good friends, you're going to be all set into your health. Of course, if you have destructive behavior, then you're going to have consequences. But the very interesting thing is that there is now strong scientific data supporting the importance of relationships, which ties into the theme of the Bronovo podcast in that in order to cultivate relationships of meaning, you have to communicate. So a little bit more about this book and then also the study upon which it is based. So the Harvard Study of Adult Development is, as I mentioned, a longitudinal study. There's an associated foundation with the study. And the, the joint mission of these two entities is to promote and use the findings of adult lifespan research to enable people to live healthier lives filled with meaning, connection, and purpose. The purpose and the goal of the study is to find answers to what makes a happy and meaningful life. So some of the topics researched are researching who will become active and vigorous into their 80s and beyond, and who will age poorly, finding what experiences in childhood are more predictive of midlife, midlife health, discovering if factors like a parent's thriving marriage predict thriving marriages among the children, and also learning how adolescents and young adults can build lives of meaning and purpose amid rapid, rapid social change. So this is something very relevant to me, and I think if you're listening and you're a fan of my podcast, it will be relevant to you. So let's dive in. A little bit of history first about the study itself. This is a mix of chapter one and then also information from the internet. So the Harvard Study of Adult Development, shorthanded as the Harvard Study, is the longest in-depth examination of adult life ever conducted. It was started just after the Great Depression and continues to this day. So the initial study was actually two studies um, that were merged at a certain point in time. One were, actually I'm going to wait and get to the demographics later. And just the the way that things, this thing has evolved is that by taking all kinds of information about people, the study of participants, throughout their lives, their children's lives, and their grandchildren's lives, is that there is a very rich data set from which we can analyze and look at patterns. Learning from these patterns about the people who were successful into their late lives, successful in their health, meaning, purpose, connectedness, feeling happy, avoiding depression. What were the factors and patterns in their lives that we can learn from? It's This study is very prestigious and important in the realms of psychology and a number of other scientific fields, and it still continues today. So it's still ongoing. The original study participants who were in the 1920s in, in Boston, um, their offspring and their further offspring participate to this day. So there are four generations of participants involved, 200 scientific papers based upon the study's data, nine books written about the study, including the one I'm reviewing, and over 2,000 people who have contributed and participated, and a very low dropout, 15%, according to this lifespanresearch.org website. 
So if you're interested to learn more about the history, all this information is online. Uh, quick correction, it was 1938 when the study was launched. Okay, so diving into chapter one. The study parameters and limitations. The other thing I want to mention from this first chapter is that the study is limited in the demographic way to these white males, white men, young boys at the time and and young adults at the time, specific to Boston. So, of course, there are differences in culture, differences in age, race, class, a number of different factors. However, a lot of these results are corroborated by other longitudinal studies from more internationally representative sets of people. So there are, in this chapter, a number of other studies that are listed from different parts of the world that corroborate a lot of these findings. So every study has its limitations. This one does have its limitations in that all of the original participants were men. So as they met spouses who were women, there were women's perspectives introduced in the subsequent years, and they were predominantly white men as they aged. So that's a limitation of the study. It's not going to be truly representative. The study, uh, this chapter claims that when holding or when controlling for those factors, um, the results still hold across race, gender, class, nationality, time. Um, So, you know, certainly something interesting to consider, but uh, they did specifically acknowledge the limitations of the the study population and then make an argument for why it uh, is still relevant. So the study was, the, the demographic data of the participants was, uh, a group of low-income, lower socioeconomic setting youths, young boys from Boston, and they're about 12 to 14 years old, and then a group of college sophomores at Harvard. Then it was Harvard College. So of the poor adolescent boys, they were judged to be on a good path. So using some metrics, they were determined to be on a good path, um, having some characteristics that the studies organizers deemed them to be less likely to be uh, thrown off course in life. There's this idea of why a longitudinal study is more rich and useful than a a cross-sectional study. So an idea we visited a few weeks ago, I'm not going to belabor that, but this is a very long study since 1938 till at present day. And the idea behind why someone should learn about this content is the idea of being able to change. So let's say you're listening right now and you have very poor relationships in your life. You don't feel connected to many people something in your past impacts how you interact with people today. Well, the data show that you can actually use an intervention and improve the relationships in your lives. And you're going to learn also through this 
next two episodes why the relationships in your lives have a very direct influence on your happiness and your quality of life. The study also yielded something interesting regarding uh, intimacy relationships and, and marriages. So because of the long-term setting of the study, you know, they were able to look at someone who was 16, 30, 40, 50, all the way through till the time they died. And there's a very strong relationship between people who were satisfied in their marriages at 50 were the healthiest at 80, or they're in the relationships more generally, because not all of them were married. I'll repeat that. The people who were most satisfied with the relationships at 50 were the healthiest at 80. So there is a very good return on investment of if you're in a relationship, maintaining that relationship, truly maintaining that relationship and making sure your partner is happy and you're happy. And the study, the chapter also references in this book, you know, this is not a new idea. Taking care of relationships, taking care of your intimate relationship is good for you. Um, the difference here is just that there is some modern science and some data behind that. Um, so more of a giving a tip of the hat to the ancient traditions that have many of the same conclusions. Moving to chapter two, why relationships matter. So the first example here is just that it is a psychological concept of effective or affective forecasting. And this is the idea that we predict uh, what will make us happy. So for example, if only I earned more money, I would be more happy. If only I had a certain car or a certain square footage of my house, or I lived in a certain town, or I dated a certain person, then I would be happy. And the data shows that not just in this data, but in other psychological data, that we are poor at predicting what will make us happy. So this idea of effect, affective forecasting and the data shows that we are bad at predicting. And there's a very simple example of this. This is the strangers, in a, the strangers on a train example. So there was a study where this study asked someone to think about if I went on my normal commute and had to talk to someone, how would I feel about it? And a lot of people, most people would say, I wouldn't like it. But then controlling, running a study, having a control group, not talk to someone and having the experimental group talk to someone. The group that talked to people actually enjoyed it and were not less productive than they normally were with that time. So that's an interesting example of how we are bad at affective forecasting and how we are influenced by our culture in the realm of what will make us happy. Again, thinking about the examples I gave of materialistic things. And if you think about it, our society, our modern world, prioritizes many things ahead of the lived experiences of, of people, of us, right? In the world, we're not really taught how to be happy. We're taught how to be capitalists, how to be cogs in an economic machine, how to be good citizens, how to be a number of things really unrelated here in the West, at least, to what makes us happy. 
loneliness is more pervasive than ever before. <clears throat> As you mentioned, this book was released in 2022, perhaps this year in 2023. So it's very recent context when we say loneliness is more pervasive than ever before, particularly because of COVID. And our ancient brains, which are designed to seek the safety of groups, experience those negative feelings as life-threatening, which leads to stress and sickness. Thinking about that idea, we're social beings, we evolved in groups. And to our bodies and brains, if we're alone, if we feel lonely, that induces a stress response because in prehistoric times, if we were alone, we were dead. Meat, total dead meat. So being lonely, not having those connections is very bad biologically and physiologically. And in this study, in this chapter, chapter two, uh, they give an example of two individuals from this study. One was a higher earning lawyer and one was a school teacher. The lawyer made a lot of money, but he was largely isolated and unsatisfied. He was married, but didn't feel connected with his kids or understood by his family and didn't understand them. Now, taking the example of the school teacher, this is someone who, I believe the example was that he had wanted to fight in World War II, but was medically disqualified, ended up becoming a school teacher, and found meaningful work, found something to make him a part of his community, and was largely regarded by the study administrators as one of the most happy people in the study. There's also observations here about class and how it influences lifespan. So the Harvard group versus the Boston boys group, the Harvard college men had a 9.1 average years longer lifespan than the than the boys who grew up with less means and that's because less money is associated with emotional pain and they also reference a book um, the hidden injuries of class that explores this topic in depth so it's another way to look at when you know we're thinking about individually why we should be motivated to earn more money or collectively how to assist those who don't have money, this is also a way to frame it as there's an emotional pain associated and that makes sense, right? Because if you don't know where your next meal is going to come from, if you don't know if you can make rent next month, if you don't know if you can buy clothes for your children, that creates emotional pain. And another very interesting piece of data here from this chapter is that people who were more socially connected had less risk of dying at any age. This is also corroborated by other meta-analyses with a more diverse sample than the Harvard study. One of these is the Holt-Lundstad study, a very famous study apparently, that explains or explores social relationships and mortality risk. This study found that social connection increased the likelihood of surviving in any given year by more than 50%. So again, corroborating, if you're more socially connected, there are benefits to you. 
Next up, there's this idea about the happiness set point. So this is the is a psychological theory that states that everyone has a genetic predisposition to happiness. So it's the idea that you know you might know someone who's super bubbly, and you might know someone who's not, and that's just part of who they are. And this theory states that you know that's preset in some way, but there's also there's also study and research around intentional efforts you know okay i have my set point but can i influence it can i raise my level and the answer is yes and quantified at 40 percent. so intentional efforts can influence this happiness set point by 40 percent. so let's say you're at 40 you can get up to 80 for example and isn't that interesting and empowering that you do have the power actually to influence your own life and influence the mood you're in and the circumstances uh, you, you, you live with within your own head. So the next uh, thing they close out this, this chapter two with is this very uh, <laughs> kind of Zen thought about, or not Zen, but you know, deep thought about before we know where we're going, we have to know where we are. And that I think is to lead into this next chapter that looks at self-reflection and self-awareness as it relates to our relationships. Moving to chapter three. This chapter is called Relationships on the Winding Road of Life. Chapter starts off with the idea that everyone's lives have similarities across gender, culture, ethnicity, sexual orientation, and class. And this is essentially the, you know, everyone was a kid at some point. Everyone goes through young adulthood, midlife, and a late life. And this chapter looks at those four stages and the psychological phenomenon associated with them. And this is part of the book where they encourage us to be reflective. So there's an exercise, which I did, and I recommend you do, which is to find an old photograph of yourself, ideally a physical one, and look at yourself and really be present in that memory and where were you, what were your priorities, what were you doing in the photo, who were your friends at the time, what was your life like, and if you want to have more of a guided meditation by the book because they go into it, but I did that, and I found it very interesting and meaningful. Okay. The mini roadmap of adult relationships. First up, adolescence, 12 to 19, walking the tightrope. In this phase, we're experimenting with new types of relationships, sometimes dramatically. People in this phase develop new views of themselves, new views of themselves via interactions with others. Internally, this time feels exciting and scary at the same time. In this moment, parents cease to become role models, uh, perhaps all the way or entirely, perhaps just to a lesser degree, but it creates a vacuum, a role model vacuum for these, for these people and these young kids. Because of that, friendships are more primary 
they become more volatile and more intimate in this in this phase of life. Do you see the theme here about relationships and how they matter? For many people, close friends are never as central as when they are teens. It's kind of a crazy thought. Thinking back to when you were in high school, if you were blessed to have friends, some people didn't. If you had friends, do you remember how close you were to them and how connected you were? That was something that I found very interesting because I had a very profound connection with my group of friends and we still do largely, but this book is making me think about how to strengthen those relationships. Externally, these adolescent years, these teenage years can seem a roller coaster ride. These people are oscillating from clingy uh, regarding their parents, clingy to then being disdainful and know-it-alls. Despite this perception, uh, in these years, teenagers' relationships with adults, they matter greatly. So they're still very influenced by adults. And the template for how an adolescent imagines life is heavily influenced by peers, teachers, coaches, parents, and the parents of friends and older siblings. So that's very interesting, the parents of friends as a kind of often forgotten influence on your adolescent teen. That's something that corroborates with me on my experience. Okay, young adulthood, ages 20 to 40, pretty wide range. From the inside, young adulthood can provoke anxiety as young adults become self-responsible and at the same time, the path forward is unclear which is conflicting because we're supposed to be sure or sure of ourselves, but there's also this great concern. Intense feelings of loneliness loneliness are often reported in this period. Knowing what we know now about the negative impact of loneliness, that is concerning. From the outside, young adults can appear to family as detached from their families and these familiar relationships as they work on and seek to build emotional intimacy with romantic partners and build a family of their own. Maybe this resonates with you. This drive for self-sufficiency can lead to social isolation, and close friendships are still very important. And that's because you need to be understood in this period of young adulthood, this transition, and this searching, this yearning, this fighting for self-sufficiency. It's important to have friends who can understand you. And this is, there's also a very interesting idea about, in this period, young adulthood, this is the area of life where I am presently. There is this balancing need for development of both competency and intimacy. So competency being the ability to be employable, to have skills, to be productive in our society, to be useful to friends and family in some way. Then also intimacy, so finding your life partner or 
exploring earlier in this period, exploring relationships and intimacy more generally. It's important to remember that these two things can develop separately. So according to the data and according to this book, it's normal if you're developing these things individually or not at the same time. And I found that very comforting because I know people who struggle with that. Next up is midlife, 41 to 65. That is stepping beyond the self. So from the outside, the middle years often look sustainable, stable, and predictable. But from the inside, people can feel overwhelmed with stress and responsibilities. It's an inflection point between young and old, self-focused and outward-focused. In this phase, we start to see this idea, again, a psychological idea of generativity. So the phenomenon of expanding one's own concerns and efforts beyond the individual life of oneself. And according to the book, this is the key to unlocking excitement and vibrancy in midlife. Here we get into, again, the relationship piece. Here in midlife, it seems most people develop that perhaps recognition that they need to help and enrich others' lives. And in return, they actually get a lot of fulfillment from that relationship. And relationships are the vehicle that allow us to both improve our own lives and to build things that will outlive us. And perhaps that's where this is relevant to the midlife because in this period people start to think about their own morality and excuse me, their own their own pending death. <laughs> I looked for a way to say it smoothly. I don't know. We're all gonna die. <clears throat> anyway, okay, late life. Sixty six plus. Minding what and who matters. The amount of time we think we have left on earth shapes our priorities. If we think we have a lot of time, we think more about the future. If we think we have less time, we try to appreciate the present. Again, that's from uh, a study, a uh, experiment, where that assertion came from. So from the outside, late life is viewed as a period of mental and physical decline, From the inside, awareness of death may approach, but appreciation of time increases. And again, this hammers home the point that the fewer moments we have to look forward to, the more valuable they become. And that's where a lot of, you know, presence comes in and the search for presence, something we've talked about a lot on the Bronovo podcast. How do we appreciate the moments we have presently? How do we really enjoy them and savor them without needing some type of dramatic life event or encroaching death. And here also looking at the the study and the lives of all the variety of people within it, we see patterns of good and bad luck across everyone. And again, this gets to the idea of increasing your own happiness and believing in your own ability to influence your own life and 
just because you're we're having some good luck doesn't mean we have earned it, right? And if we are having bad luck, it doesn't mean that we deserve it. Looking at it as truly chance or a roll of the dice or riding a wave that will end. And will, or if you're in a trough, you will reach a crest again. And according to the closing words of chapter three, the more we nurture positive relationships, the better chances, the better our, our chances are of surviving and thriving. Okay. Last chapter for the day. Chapter four. Chapter four is called Social Fitness, Keeping Your Relationships in Good Shape. Classic example, if you have a nice car and you're a man, you probably take care of it. You know, I feel like on the <laughs> the levels of enlightenment are first level, are you taking care of your body like you would your nice car? Are you taking care of your relationships like you would your nice car? Ooh, I don't know. So there's an example of a study where a biopsy was done, just a piece of skin taken. Uh, control group was non-caretakers and the experimental group were caretakers, so someone who's responsible for caretaking. The caretaker group took nine days longer to heal than non-caretakers. So the assumption or the assertion is that these people were extremely stressed and their bodies took longer to heal, alluding to the mind-body connection. So if you're mentally stressed, your body has associated physical stress in a way that is real and impacts our lives beyond just some kind of foo-foo or hippie idea. No, there's real impact on your actual health. If you're stressed and you don't take care of yourself, you will die sooner <laughs> is, is the point. And the whole idea, the whole thesis, the whole thrust behind this whole thing is that take care of relationships, you'll be more happy. You'll get more satisfaction. You will have a buffer from these stresses that impact your health. Part of improving our relationships is having an honest assessment of them. So looking in the mirror and thinking honestly about where your life stands is a first step in trying to live a good life. Noticing where you are can help put into relief where you want to be. There's also this example of this uh, gentleman. Uh, all these names are changed, anonymized. The the book in the book, this gentleman's called Sterling. That wasn't his real name. I don't know what his real name was. His real name was. He was from the. He was from the poor boy study, not the Harvard study. He, as an adult, we were introduced to him. He's living in Montana, living in a trailer. He likes it because he's mobile and he's not rooted in the place. He's divorced. He doesn't have a relationship with his kids, even though they like him, and he loves them. When he thinks about them, he feels very positive and it lights him up, but he doesn't think about them. And the book's assessment is that because of his childhood, he has an aversion to intimacy and relationships because he 
was hurt and abused as a kid. So what he does is he puts a positive spin on his relationships mentally and then pushes them away to the point where he actually pushes away his kids and he doesn't have a relationship with them. Because in his head, he tells himself it's fine, but they gave examples of he learned Italian because his daughter was living in Italy and he learned Italian to be able to visit her and have an enriching experience. But when the time came to go and visit her, she invited him to visit him. She invited him to visit her. He didn't go because he didn't want to, quote, be a burden. So, again, affective forecasting, for example, maybe subconsciously Sterling thought this was the best approach to protect himself and keep himself happy. But obviously, it was, uh, it's, it's quite sad because he missed out on those opportunities. Loneliness hurts. Loneliness is associated with being more sensitive to pain, suppression of the immune system, diminished brain function, and less effective sleep. In a study of 18-year-olds, there's a strong association between loneliness and risky behavior. <laughs> risky behavior. Psh, avoid that. Teen, uh, I don't know if I like that. I mean, what teenager doesn't engage in risky behavior? One is not having enough fun. That's what I would say. Anyway, risky behavior, poor mental health, and negative coping strategies. This is a very important idea that I'll elaborate on. Negative and positive coping strategies. This is mental health, suicide prevention 101. If you're stressed, you need to have positive coping strategies. These are coping strategies that do not make you feel worse than you already do. Ideally, they make you feel better. So, drinking alcohol, negative coping strategy. Cutting yourself, negative coping strategy. Dating some dickhead who treats you poorly, negative coping strategy. Positive coping strategy examples would be exercising, calling a friend, taking a bubble bath, journaling, drawing, playing the ukulele. These are all, this is an important thing unrelated to this book, but if you've never heard about that, best practice, write down right now, what are your five positive coping strategies? Have that in your back pocket. Next time you feel shitty, pull that out. And do those things and avoid things like vaping. All of you people, <laughs> I smoke cigars, so I can't, I can't sit on a high horse, but vaping is so common. If that's your negative coping strategy when you're stressed, maybe think about a positive one. Okay, back to loneliness. So loneliness is such a problem, in the United Kingdom at least, that they created a ministry of loneliness, and this is to offset or influence the economic, the quantified economic impact of loneliness on workers. So if there is someone who leaves their job because they're sad, that has an economic impact at scale. I don't know about this ministry. It's probably a politically hot button issue, but it's an interesting example of a quantified effect of loneliness. The objective facts of someone's life are not enough to explain why someone is lonely. So this this is the idea that just because someone is married, has kids, has a job, is wealthy, has all the things that you would think make them feel good, if their 
relationships are shallow or not nurtured, they could feel lonely. Vice versa. You could look at someone who, by our Western, rich world Western standards, doesn't have a lot, but they could be way more happy than 80% of the people that we know. Probably they have good relationships. And the idea of loneliness uh, related to, earlier we talked about our ancient brains, so prehistoric evolutionary biology example, if I'm in my tribe, and then I'm separated from my tribe, and I'm alone. I have a physical response. I probably sleep less soundly. I'm more stressed. I am not sleeping as soundly because I need to be ready to react. I'm nervous. I'm anxious. All of these things influence and have a physical response until I'm returned with my tribe. Because when I'm with my tribe, I can be safer. I can gather more resources. I can effectively ward off predators. And for the modern person who is experiencing chronic loneliness, they're experiencing these stressors in a long-term way and in a way that if they were in their ancient self or in their evolutionary self, it would be as if they're isolated and away from their tribe for long periods of time. So, of course, that's not good for us. An example of to make us think about our relationships and how often we see the people we like. So let's pretend you and your best friend in the world, you get together once a week for an hour to crush espresso macchiatos. Over the next 40 years, that's 87 days of time together. But if you see someone who you really like just once a year, that's a lot less time with them, right? It adds up to be a lot less. I don't have the numbers in front of me. Uh, well, once a year, that's just one hour. That's going to be four, <laughs> that's going to be forty hours over the next forty years. Thank you, math. As opposed to eighty-seven days. So, in context here, to put this into relief, to use a phrase from the book, in twenty eighteen, the average American spent eleven hours a day interacting with media of all sorts. That's 18 years of waking life over the next 40 years. So your best friend in the world who you spend an hour with every week, you're going to get 87 days with them over 40 years. You're going to get 18 whole years of your 40 years interacting with bullshit media. So a reflection point would be, is there a relationship in your life that would benefit both of you if you could spend more time together? Hmm. There are two crucial predictors of happiness per this section of the book. One of them is time spent with others. Couples in a satisfied relationship who spend time together are buffered from the ups and downs of everyday life, is an example. So because the study was quite long over time, the study would do things like every year send a big packet questionnaire to a husband and wife and then also do in-person interviews every two years or so getting getting information directly from them. How's your relationship with your husband? How much time do you spend together? What do you do with your day? And the pattern showed that 
couples in a satisfied relationship who spent quality time together were buffered from the ups and downs. So for example, the way they quantified that would be, how do you feel overall? And the more time you spend with your loved one, the more likely you are to say consistently over time, I feel good. I feel good. As opposed to the people who had less quality time with their partner were more likely to say they felt bad chronically, feeling lonely or unhappy. These two crucial predictors of our happiness are the frequency and quality, so essentially quality and quantity, of our interactions with other people. These are two major predictors of happiness. So how many times are you seeing or getting quality interaction with the people who you love or anyone really? If you're, you know, maybe there's some guy in your street who you like to bullshit with and you both leave smiling and laughing and have a few jokes. That is a quality interaction. If it's quality for you, it's, it's all super subjective. That's going to help you and scientifically will increase your out, your likelihood of being happier. The next phase here is a social observatory. So it's a simple graph, uh, vertical and horizontal planes. On the vertical plane, there's energizing and depleting. On the horizontal plane, there's infrequent contact and frequent contact. So if you think about a quadrant, the top left quadrant is going to be energizing and infrequent. The bottom left is going to be infrequent and depleting. The top right quadrant is energizing and frequent. The bottom right quadrant is frequent and depleting. So the idea is that you chart your relationships in your life, uh, write down the 10 most important people in your life, and chart them on this course. Is this person energizing and you see them a lot? Are they energizing you see them not enough? Are they depleting? Do they take energy from me and I see them infrequently? Or are they depleting and you see them frequently? So the idea is if you see here, oh, Billy Bob, I love that guy, but I don't see him enough. How do I get him on the right side of the, of the chart to be where I see him more? Or, ah, uh, Timmy, that guy sucks. He depletes me. I leave, I leave my interactions with him feeling really bad. How do I move him away from being on the frequent side of my chart to seeing him less frequently? So it's an interesting, an interesting uh, reflective exercise. Okay, next up, the keystones of relationships. Those would be giving and receiving. Giving and receiving. Attention, energy, affirmation. There's actually a... Um, there's actually a whole number of metrics that you can use uh, from this book to quantify these things that you give and receive from other people. So these would be safety and support, learning and growth, emotional connection and comforting, identity affirmation and shared experience, romantic intimacy, help, fun, and relaxation. So the idea is that Per the data from this longitudinal study, if you are able to provide those things for other people, and then also get them back, for, get those things back from them, 
that's the foundation of a good relationship. That's the keystone of relationship. And as such of a meaningful life, because if you have rich relationships, you will have a rich life. So some example questions, these are some hard hitters. Um, so here we go. Who would you call if you woke up scared in the middle of the night? Who would you turn to in a moment of crisis? Those are the people, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're lucky enough to have those people who you can list in those answers, these are the people who can help us navigate through times of stress and also encourage us to experience new things, which yes, experiencing new things is good for you. <laughs> Try it sometime. Who encourages you to try new things, to take chances, to pursue your life's goals? Ah. Who knows everything or most things about you? Who can you call on when you're feeling low and be honest with them about how you're feeling? Who can you ask for advice and trust what they say? Is there someone in your life who has shared many experiences with you and who helps strengthen your sense of who you are and where you've come from. A side note from the authors here, these relationships cannot be replaced. I'm going to repeat the question. And if you can think of those people, think about how is your relationship with them? Is it strong? Is it strong enough? How can you strengthen it? Is there someone in your life who has shared many experiences with you and who helps strengthen your sense of who you are and where you've come from? If there is someone in your life, the study and I recommend go strengthen that relationship. There's an old saying, apparently new to me, but the old saying is that you can't make old friends. Do you feel satisfied with the amount of romantic intimacy in your life? Are you satisfied in your sexual relationship or relationships? Who do you turn to if you need to Excuse me, who do you turn to if you need some experiences or help solving a practical problem? I think that's a typo. Who do you turn to if you need help solving a practical problem? Who makes you laugh? Who do you call to see a movie or go on a road trip? Who makes you feel relaxed, connected, and at ease? So these are all questions to help you reflect on the dimensions of those things we get from other people and we give other people. Safety and support, learning and growth, emotional connection, identity affirmation, romantic intimacy, help, fun, and relaxation. And the idea behind this is forced reflection. Forcing ourselves to reflect on where we are. We're so busy. We got all this crazy stuff going on. But taking time to slow down, get a grasp on your relationships, and then improve them. And it will enrich your life. Okay, the last section of chapter four and the conclusion of this episode of the podcast is entitled Working from the Top Down. The idea is to reinforce the relationships that are working. So once you've gone through these exercises and identified the fucking rock stars in your life, the people who get you stoked and happy and make you love life, go reinforce those relationships. Check in with them. What do they give you from your metrics? Do you give it back to them? Do you give them what they're giving you? 
They also, uh, authors provide some suggestions for how to work from the top down and how to reinforce these special relationships. The first idea is around the power of generosity. Being generous primes the brain for feeling good, and those feelings in turn make us more likely to help in the future. So you do something good, you feel good about it, and you do it again. It's an upward spiral. Thinking about generosity, how does the balance of giving and receiving feel in your life? Are you taking a lot but not giving? Are you giving a lot but not having it returned? Those are good things to observe. Suggestion number two, learning new dance steps. So again, this idea of neuroplasticity, the idea that you can influence your life, you can improve your life. And that is that in regards to relationships, don't fall into your own false affective forecasts. Don't fall into your own self-fulfilling prophecies about your relationships. Don't believe that you can't change them. Learn some new dance steps. Learn, do something different. If you really fucking care about this person, do something to show them. Do something to change it up. Don't let another five years slip by. The last suggestion is radical curiosity. So curiosity, real deep curiosity about what others are experiencing goes a long way in important relationships. Who is this person really and what's their deal? What's their freaking deal? Curiosity connects us to others and connecting us to others engages with our own lives and enriches our own lives. I'm going to read that again. Connecting connects to others, or (laughs) curiosity connects us to others. And connecting to others actually engages us with our own lives. Very similar to the generosity idea. It's a self-fulfilling upward spiral of if you connect with someone and you really, you know, I'm like, you know what? I never have asked you, you know, how was your childhood? Or what are you most passionate about? Or... What do you do besides work? Connecting with them makes them feel good, makes you feel good, and then you do it more. And then it's, uh, it's, it's all good. It's all good. The last thought from this chapter is that there is power in truly understanding someone else and in being understood. I think that's the root of the why that this study found, the why behind why are long-term health outcomes tied to positive relationships, probably because of the power in truly understanding someone else and it being understood. So there it is, folks. The episode one of two, discussion and notes from The Good Life, lessons from the world's longest scientific study of happiness. My name is Thomas Pierce. Thank you all for listening. I hope you found this informative, entertaining, and insightful. If you have liked what you've heard, please uh, subscribe to whatever podcatcher you listen to the Bronova Podcast on. And come back next Friday for next week's episode of the Bro Nouveau Podcast. <laughs>